Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm thrilled to be talking about the movie Dumb Money with writers Lauren Shukerblum and Rebecca Angelo. And I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your stylistic approach and your partnership as writers, because the two of you initially met as journalists together at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I feel like that's such a perfect kind of starting point for the two of you when it comes to working on a project like this in terms of the approach and and the level of research and particularly because it was essentially a news story that was continuing to unfold throughout not even just the writing process but the production process and so how did that that background as journalists together and the fact that you kind of have a shared approach really shape the way that you worked on this project throughout together? Oh, in every way. I feel like this movie brought together every aspect of our professional lives. So like, you know, it really came full circle for us. It was, it's a little bit like we've been training for this marathon for a really long time. And then all of a sudden someone just like fired a starting gun and we were like, oh, okay, we're actually ready for this. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, Lauren and I really like to work and we like to be really iterative in our work. I think we um, have had any kind of preciousness beaten out of us by the daily grind of the news cycle. So we do a lot of drafts. We write quickly. We we also delete quickly um, and rewrite. So uh, we were able to kind of... Um, uh, multi-track the research and the writing of the screenplay because this was a story that was unfolding as we were trying to chronicle it but also this was a foot race in terms of trying to beat out all the other GameStop projects because I think there were nine at one point um, in Hollywood so we uh, spent a ton of time in the early days listening and gathering information and doing interviews and also trying to kind of synthesize the material we were getting into character portraits that felt rich and represent um, and commit those to the page as quickly as possible. Yeah, and because the story was unfolding, it felt like we always said getting on a roller coaster ride halfway through. And, you know, so we did a lot, you know, when the congressional hearing happened, we ended up kind of redoing the third act to be around that. Um, and, you know, the SEC investi you know, investigation came out six months after we had started our first draft. And so we were constantly revising the story based on what was happening in real time. But but also in terms of, of the way that you were writing this project, it's really such an ensemble piece um, in terms of the way that the character stories really interweave. And, and I love kind of thinking about that in terms of the fact that you haven't just written features, but also you were writing on Orange is the New Black, which, you know, to your point in in writing fast is television is such a speed race in terms of how fast you have to deliver scripts, but also that show in particular did such a wonderful job at serving so many different character stories. And so how did that experience really parlay over into, you know, telling such a, a, a richly entrenched ensemble piece with this film? That's a great, great question. Yeah. I think, you know, Orange, it had to get the cast was like 80 actors at some point. And so we did have, like we said, like incredible training for this marathon we had to do with, you know, to get this movie done. Um, and that was certainly part of it. I think because the story to us is really about a movement that started, it was important to do it as an ensemble. It always felt like that was the right approach. And Ben Mesrick wrote the book that the movie is based on, took an ensemble approach in his book as well. And so we never, you know, we never thought about doing like the Keith Gill biopic. It always felt like you had to show Keith Gill's journey and the people who followed him. And also, of course, the other sides of it, you know, the Wall Street characters that you couldn't really tell the story without showing every perspective. I think one thing that we took away from our experience in Orange in particular is the courage it took for Genji Kohan to put the show out there that really sought to represent very many different 
points of view, very many different life stories. Um, and that's a little bit of a controversial idea, I think, in, in the creative community right now that you can, um, you know, set up and do your best to tell a story from what is not your lived experience, but really do the work, do the research and, and, and try your best to put yourself behind the eyes of somebody who's very different from you. And, um, and that's especially vital when you're trying to craft an ensemble, because of course you use your humanity to dial into each character, but you also have to make these characters really diverse and interesting and unique and have their own voices, their own life experiences, their own motivations to, in our case, do something they've never done before, download a stock trading app, buy a call option. Um, you really have to have the confidence and also be able to back up that confidence with the 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 shoe leather work of trying to get to know all of these people and do your best to speak in their voice. And when you look at the the structure of the script and the story, um, you know, it, it's an ensemble, but really kind of at the center of that core is Roaring Kitty, which is the Paul Dano character of Keith Gill. Um, and in essence, he's kind of the protagonist and the antagonist, depending on the other characters. And so would you kind of look to what you were having him do in particular scenes, kind of like where his storyline was going to then look at, okay, what's the reactionary effect on every single other character in his orbit yeah. in the story? Absolutely. I mean, I think that was like, that he's the spine of the movie and you know Shailene plays his wife and his family is also you know a spine of it and the script we sort of thought of as like a French braid where every you know every the ends of scenes really play into the beginning of scenes and we have characters in the film who don't meet are never going to meet and so they really had to talk to each other and have arguments like from one scene into the next it was the only way to really connect them and that was a choice we made to really reflect the reality of the story and also the the moment that it happened during the pandemic and reflect that people were separated. Um, but yeah, I think we, you know, you what we wanted to sort of look at the way that he became this accidental hero to people and also an accidental leader and a kind of reluctant leader. Um, and the effect that his words had on people when they were watching his videos, you know, both emotion, you know, in terms of what, what they are buying, but also emotional, like it's an emotional story at its core. Yeah. And the essence of a reluctant hero, right, is that sometimes he's leading and sometimes he's being led. Sometimes the the army is drawing it out of him, um, asking where he is, wanting to know what he's doing, saying, dude, you got to step up. You got it. We're following you. Um, so, yeah, I think. It's, it was interesting to look at parasocial relationships through the the lens of this story, because everybody in this movie, everybody, you know, the 8 million people on Wall Street Bets during the height of this phenomenon had, uh, to varying degrees, a, a pretty intense parasocial relationship with a guy who mainly communicated through super eccentric YouTube videos and like GIFs and emojis that he he posted on Twitter. Um, so that method of a leader communicating with his flock, with his army, with his team um, felt uh, really modern and of the moment in a way, but then also timeless and, and a kind of classic story of reluctant heroism. I also love that point of you have so many characters in the film who never meet each other in the real world, who don't cross paths in in scenes. And like you said, that kind of that kind of made the endpoints and the endpoints of scenes really vital, but it's also finding the connective thread and the connective tissue. So you see multiple characters considering their trade options and like, well, if he's still in, then I'm in. So sometimes they're also literally saying the same lines as one another. Um, exactly. And so how did you set about kind of figuring out all those different details to really pull together a linear thread that connected these characters, even though they're all so different it's 
it's so great that you picked up on the um, and that you zeroed in on the use of language, the repetition of phrases. We also tried to do that with images, with jokes and with music. Um, Lauren and I have spent the last 10 years, I would say, uh, studying, being becoming obsessed with and trying to tell stories of online movements, particularly social media driven populist movements in a cinematic way, because social media driven populism is one of the most fascinating, possibly the most powerful force shaping our world today. It's also the least cinematic because people are engaging in these emo these passionate emotional relationships, but they don't meet each other. They're never in the same room. Um, so we wanted to create something that was visceral and emotional and also something that was visual um, that didn't just look like people sitting at their computers typing and like maybe sweating a little bit or getting angry or the like horrible trope of like they throw their phone, they slam their laptop. Um, so we did, and we also wanted the pace of the movie and the tone of the movie to feel really authentic to social media and to the internet and to things like TikTok. So we did a lot. We wanted to move really fast, be really like propulsive and staccato, scenes overlapping, ha have it seem like people are engaged in arguments or building an idea, joining into something um, without, without the benefit of geographically being anywhere near each other. So we really relied on the way this happens in the real world. People come together around music that they love. People come together around memes and jokes and gifs that they share. Um, and they come together around really catchy, sticky lines that just hook into us for one reason or another. But also, also kind of on the back of that point about how social media and the online world isn't naturally cinematic, kind of taking that a step further, you also have scenes where characters are by themselves, you know, and especially for the Roaring Kitty scenes, there's so many scenes where it's just Paul Dano sitting in his basement and yet it still feels engaging. We still kind of get the intent of, of his character in that moment. And so what are the challenges that come with writing scenes like that for both of you? Oh God, well, that is a you know a tough scene because Paul is literally having to talk, you know, by himself at himself. Spent so much time in a basement in New Jersey where the the real actor could not fully stand up because the ceiling was too low, which felt constraining visually in the best way. Like it just, it creates this kind of like tense, explosive situation. Um, but it was miraculous what Paul did. I mean, he would walk around the streets of New York City just with Roaring Kitty playing on loop in his ears for, for months before he shot this role. And he was kind of like almost a medium for this character. Um, and it's also a testament to what Craig Gillespie did uh, as the director, because in in many senses, the camera is the scene, the scene partner or the screens, you know, the, the camera lens, but also the screens and the iPhone screen, you know, it, it's a movie that's really a story that's really mediated by screens in so many ways that becomes the only scene partner that that Paul has um so you know you rely on extraordinary actors to do a lot without speaking and then you give them a brother or a mom or a dad or like a really awesome wife too yeah, I think it's also like Shailene you know but she's on the stairs with one look right she communicates like, you know, hundreds of pages. That it dialogue. is a miracle. Right. We, there would be like seven lines of stage direction and no dialogue. And Shailene would sit on those stairs and we would just be like in tears or laughing hysterically. And she would not open her mouth. 
But it was important to us, again, not to like invent things that didn't happen in the sense that this was a story that was mediated by screens. It was a story that took place with everyone separated and trying to kind of conjure that energy without, you know, while making it grounded, right? That's the challenge. And, and that is where, again, like language and repetition and echoes comes in. You know, even the way you see, you see Seth Rogen, who plays the hedge funder, Gabe Plotkin running, you see... Um, and you see Paul Dano running and, you know, they're kind of doing the same thing, but doing it in different ways. And it helps kind of create that battle and face off between them. You know, another thing that Laura and I did, a decision that we made very, very early in the process was that we wanted to, instead of coming up with some high concept device like Margot Robbie in a bathtub, which was wonderful when Adam McKay did it in the big short, but that really was a movie about the people on top seeing something that nobody else saw. This is a very different movie. It's a story about regular people coming together and 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 also seeing what nobody else saw, but 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 doing it on mass and and making a stand for both profit and principle. Um, and we, uh, as we first did the research, first were getting acclimated to the story. We consumed a, a, a huge number of TikToks, of YouTube videos, and came to understand that you didn't need Margot Robbie in a bathtub because regular people were doing exactly what Roaring Kitty did. They were speaking into their phones. They were making funny videos, dashed off videos in their college dorm rooms during their break on their jobs. And we wanted, you know, we looked a lot at Frank Capra and and the early tradition of populist cinema in Hollywood to elevate the stories of regular men to the stuff of of the silver screen and and our attempt at kind of updating that cinema, cinematic language for the modern era was we're going to take these real people and we're going to put them in the movie. We're not going to reshoot them. We're not going to script them and make them perfect, but we're going to show authentically how real people were alone with their screens. And then you can understand, it gives you a shorthand as a viewer um, for what's happening when Anthony Ramos is alone with his screen or America Ferreira is because those stories are interspersed with real examples of what was happening at the time. And that held true for the for the third act, for the, the hearing with Congress. You know, I think other films have like had the Congress person get in their black car and go to the mm -hmm. hearing. And this hearing actually happened on Zoom during the pandemic. So we I mean, those are all real Congress people, except there's one clip, I think, of a actor, but the rest are that's where all members of Congress who ask these questions. And we built the third act to really use those real clips you know, in an effort, again, to ground the film and to really reflect. the, the story. It also just gives it like leaning into the truth of the story gives it like an absurdist comedic level because the stakes could not have been higher of, of that congressional hearing for Keith Gill, for for Ken Griffin, for all of the major players in the movie. And it was happening on Zoom where people were like forgetting to turn off mute. And it's just the the story that we've all lived out over the last however many years of pandemic and post-pandemic life. So it was fun to have our kind of climactic standoff, our championship game, our third act happen in this absurd internet, like, you know, Zoom room. <laughs> I love that. And and also as well as thinking very specifically about the visual elements, it sounds like you were thinking about a lot of the sound very early on. And, you know, even just the fact that WAP was in the very first draft of the, the script that you wrote as a song drop. And so how were you thinking specifically about music and potential needle drops and then collaborating with Craig Gillespie once he came on board and was also bringing other potential music to the table? Yeah. Well, with WAP, Savage and Humble, we were all originally um, in our drafts and that Which is, it's insane. Like Lauren yeah. and I put those in the script because they were, 
you know, in the case of WAP and Savage, they were iconic songs of that moment. And at a time when everybody was basically like locked in their homes and forced into this isolation, it, it made, I think, the power of a, a, a single like bop or anthem to bring us together and like articulate what we're feeling. It, it, it ratcheted up by a thousand. Um, and, and those were just like, this is a period piece, right? It's a recent past period, but it's still a period piece. And those songs evoke that period, at least for us, basically more than anything. And then humble is just like Kendrick. I mean, it's it's incredible, and and a movie about humility and hubris like this. We couldn't think of anything better, but we were like, surely we will never get this. I bet it, like our, our producer was like, "Are you trying to break the budget of the movie?" <laughs> yeah. This is but like a low then, budget movie. This then, movie cost know, like twenty five million dollars. We we probably should have given all of it to Megan The Stallion, Cardi B, <laughs> Kendrick Lamar. Um, but uh, somehow, by some miracle, Sue Jacobs, our our um, music supervisor, and Craig and the producing team managed to get this music and. Hopefully, our intention with it was to um, to to add to the visceral element and to the energetic element of the movement. Um, you know, we wanted we, our shorthand is we say it's it's not just a movie or it's not a movie; it's a movement, and we really want the experience of watching the movie to feel like what it felt like to join this movement, to get pulled in and lifted up by it. Um, we talked a lot about this kind of like highfalutin concept of collective effervescence from the French philosopher Emile Durkheim. This notion that um, the experience of coming together, which those moments are so few and far between in modern life, especially in pandemic life, but that coming together and and having a shared experience, believing in something together creates a kind of electricity that is so much greater than the sum of its parts. It really lifts you up and music more than anything else can do that. I mean, we're, we're seeing how music does it with Beyonce and Taylor Swift right now and in, a, in our own small, humble way, humble way. We wanted to try to do that with this movie. So you sit in the theater with a group of people and 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 those bass lines and and those choruses just pull you in and make you feel like you're a part of this. Well, I think also social movements are anthemic, right? So this movie had to have anthems to bring that up. And like, and if he's an Iman is also an anthem, right? Like these songs are, but these have words that were said over and over again. And I think people look at this film as a financial movie, but I think to us, the, the lens of like who made money on GameStop and who lost money is actually too narrow to look at it. It was actually about people saying, I want to make my voice heard. I want to be part of something bigger than myself at a time when we all felt very small and scared during a pandemic. And to look at it as a moment of like social protest, right? To also say, I want to, you know, I want to have equity in the system and it, I don't want to just let the Wall Street bigwigs decide who has value in a society, right? I mean, that's ultimately what, I think Roaring Kitty said and why his message resonated with people is he was saying, we decide what, you know, we decide if companies like GameStop have value and it isn't just up to the elite, you know, and the people on Wall Street. Absolutely. And and I also wanted to talk about uh, your collaboration and working with Craig Gillespie as, as a director of the film, because he really made sure to have the two of you on set throughout and even going through post-production and getting to kind of be part of the edit suite. And this wasn't the first time that you were coming together and collaborating when you came on board for the project and it came to you, you were literally already working on another project with him and like sitting in his house. Um, and I was interested in just kind of the, the dynamic and what you feel you were really able to bring to the table as writers by being so included throughout 
about the production and the post-production process because that's not always a given when you're writing on a film. Yes, yes. Some directors <laughs> want to never see the writer again. And that's like, we understand why. Um, <laughs> but I think as part of our marathon training, a part of that was also like, we were basically stalking Craig Gillespie. For <laughs> we so admire him as a filmmaker and a director. And we, uh, I think- The I- empathy he brings to his characters the and the way he uses music and, and the energy that he captures with his camera is uh, no one else is doing I'm anything really good, I don't think. We used to laugh that like he approaches being on set as though he's almost like a war- like photographer, like it's a war zone and he comes in and he never stops shooting and he's grabbing material. And, you know, this actor can't, can't get there till 10 o'clock at night. So we'll just change the scenes. You know, he really, he's really dynamic. We're, we were writing, like we would, we would bring our laptops out onto the lawn and write extra material. Sebastian Stan was uh, unbelievable. And he would get through, he'd give you four totally different takes, each of which was perfect. And then Craig would look around and be like, what more do we have for him? And Lauren and I would like run out onto the lawn of the house we were shooting in and and write pages and pages for him to to perform because he was just so good. And Craig, it, it, he he never cuts. So like you get um you get a certain amount of storage space when you're shooting a movie um for for all of the everything you shoot. Craig blew through all of the storage space in I think two days. Um, because he never yells cut. He just keeps going and going, all right, that was that was great. Let's try another. Um and right away. <laughs> right away yeah. again. Yeah. But I think also, you know, this movie was relatively it's a pretty low budget movie. And we only shot for, I think it was 31 days, but Craig spent, you know, pre-production, but before pre-production, sitting with the actors, he and Paul would sit for nine hours. Pete and Paul and him would sit for nine hours and they would talk about the story and talk about the characters and the script. And then Craig would call us and say, okay, like here are the notes that collectively, you know, we have from with me and the actors, go redo these pages. So it was very iterative with him too. And we really worked the script every day, every hour for months before shooting. And the actors, are, you know, Craig is so collaborative, both with us, but also with the actors. They were a huge part of that. And I think it just made the film infinitely richer because it wasn't as if they were coming on set and shooting that day. You know, this is part of like a very long conversation we were all having about the story. And that's how that's how he was able to capture so much, you know, in the time that we had. Yeah. And and you were both talking a little bit before about the pacing of the movie and kind of there's this, there's this building tension, but you also have to kind of allow those little breaths for the audience as well. And it's even just, okay, now we're going to kind of like take a little bit of a slower beat because here's a scene with Paul Dano and Shailene's characters kind of talking about their marriage and a little bit more of like intimacy versus like the tension of everything with all the characters involved at once. And so how did you set about finding that pacing where you're building it because of the tension, but then also finding those moments where you want to kind of like pull back and allow for those little breaths yeah i mean there there's like a macro answer to that and a micro answer i mean just on a scene by scene level we were always looking for moments to puncture the tension with humor um to you know the the stage character the roommate character for um for the college girls is a great example of that where in you know things would be heating up between them and things would be heating up with the stock and then all of a sudden she would just deliver some devastating like little pinprick into their balloon um so we were looking for it i guess more humorously in in tiny moments and then 
when we put together the scaffolding of a script, we're always looking at really carefully modulating the audience experience. Um, and, you know, you don't want to overwhelm. You don't want to feel like, especially with a movie that's that's kind of chaotic and hectic the way this is, um, you don't want to exhaust people. You don't want to overwhelm people. You want to guide them through the story really carefully. Um, so, you know, it, it's just a matter of we've got three really intense scenes where we're ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting. Like maybe we can take a moment here and do something more personal, zig when we've been zagging. Um, but that is a process that you repeat when you're in the edit room as well. So that it was kind of like a two-part process, putting it into the to the script the best we could. And then very graciously, Craig and our incredible editor, Kirk Baxter, invited us into that process. Um, and uh, and just watching it a million times and feeling how it feels and um, and saying like, you know, we need a personal beat here. That was, I think in the edit, one thing that was, you know, the energy was like, that was sort of like our North Star of like following the energy of the story and making sure that when we had a quieter moment with America for the gas station, right? Or when Keith is talking about his sister and they go to the cemetery, making sure that those quieter moments were in the right place in the story energy wise. And that's what took the most time. And Kirk Baxter is the, is such a talented editor and he tracked that obsessively and really worked the edit to make sure that we were never interrupting the energy for the audience and, you know, helping the audience go on the ride as opposed to stopping them from, from feeling things. And there were some darlings that we had to murder for the sake of energy. We, we moved heaven and earth to get loop daddy, Mark Rebelay to set for like an hour to film a kind of movie magic moment that we had imagined for America Ferreira. We don't want to give any spoilers away, but he's, he looms very large as a kind of like romantic fantasy object for America's scene partner, Larry Owens, who's incredible in the film. And he's a big doubter. He's the voice of you should sell. Are you sure the big guys always win? And then, you know, America goes on her journey uh, and and ends where she ends. And, and one bright spot for her was we imagine getting to meet this, this, um, this, uh, object of lust for her doubting friend and getting to have kind of like a fizzy flirty interaction with him so we got Mark Rebelay in for a day on set he was amazing with America they were incredible but then when we watched the cut when Craig and Kirk watched the cut they were like it's just too upbeat we got to feel down here we got to stay <laughs> down um so uh so it had to go but I think it'll be in the deleted scenes if anybody would like to purchase the DVD eventually. Yeah, it'll be, I think it's in the the like iTunes version. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, I love everything in terms of just like the detailing that went into this because there's so much that you have to really get into the weeds with to tell a story like this. So congratulations to both of you on everything with the film and thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. This was an incredible conversation. Your questions. You have really like you just have done so much homework. And I, I can't tell you how grateful we are to talk to somebody who engaged with the movie and and um and, and to get into it. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much.